One of the disciplines of preaching expositorily through book is it takes us to places that perhaps our natural minds and hearts don't or would never go, but by them we are deepened and brought into the full counsel of God's truth. This Sunday is one of those, and we will be taken there many times in the book of Romans. We're looking at the first chapter of Romans in the 17th and 18th verses. Read with me. This is God's word. For in it, and he's referring to the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. During my graduate school days, I found myself on the steps of Emory University Library in Atlanta, Georgia, late at night after the library had closed. I was in conversation with another graduate student in theology, this time a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest. Our conversations, you might imagine, both single, the night ahead of us, interested in ideas and theology, ranged broadly. But finally, he stopped and looked me full in the face and said, uh, you Baptists are always talking about being saved. What I, as a Catholic, would like to know is, what do you mean by that? Now, I thought that was an unusual question to be coming from a uh, fellow brother in Christ, from whatever tradition, but perhaps the fact that it was asked says something about the different conversation that we have with our Catholic brothers and sisters. But at the conclusion of it, he summed it up more pithily. He said, Saved from what? Last week we looked at the affirmation that we should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. But at least hanging the question, saved from what? What about? What is this salvation? And the next verses address that though in ways that many of us will find surprising or at first unnatural. The way we often hear it, the text, and I'm going to paraphrase it, the way it comes to our ears from other messages, other gospel messages, is something like this. I'm going to paraphrase. The words are going to be changed except the beginning. But let's hear verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, for in it, the gospel... And then our hearts, our ears, hear something like this. The love of God is revealed from faith to faith. And indeed, the gospel does reveal the love of God. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is the good news because it is the love of God 
revealed, displayed, shown, made manifest. But that is not the truth that this text is referring to, at least not immediately, not directly. It takes us to a different place. Look at Romans 1.18 that we just read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The way this particular part of the letter, this particular text and verses are reading, it tells us not that the love of God is revealed, but that his anger is, his righteousness is. Hear the text. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith for it as it is written. And we often hear the just, but the righteous shall live by faith. What we need to be saved from primarily, most deeply, is the wrath of God. God is angry at our unrighteousness and the way we suppress and distort the truth. This week it just happened that uh, one of my theology classes, North and South, they're out of sync, so not up here in Northern California, but in the Southern California class, we looked at the uncomfortable doctrine of evil and of sin. We reviewed the problem, the characteristics, the panoply of our waywardness and We discussed it under terms of sin being an inner force and a controlling power and missing the mark of inattention to what we are called to be careful about, of rebellion and treachery and perversion and abomination and self-centered pride. Quite a list. In the next chapter... Romans 2.8, Paul writes, To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, notice those two words again, truth rejected, unrighteousness embraced, God will render wrath with his indignation. That's our problem. That's our deepest problem. The holy and pure and righteous and good and loving God is angry with our unrighteousness and our uncleanness and our unholiness. This is our ultimate problem. Finally, it is the wrath of God which is going to pronounce just judgment on those who deserve to be separated from himself forever. If you ask what it is from which we are saved to the book of Romans, there will be many answers. It will be rich We will be saved from our sin and guilt and waywardness and rebellion and treachery and destructive habits and harmful ways. But the main answer, the central answer, is that we are saved from the wrath of God. Our deepest problem, according to this text, and it's difficult for us here to understand, to even know in 2014, is that we are sinners in the hands of an omnipotent, Infinite, holy, just, pure, angry God. Jonathan Edwards, of course, developed that theme in his famous, much anthologized sermon by that title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I, I was so taken by his prose, I have three pages of notes from it. I'm going to edit it down on the fly to just 
two short paragraphs. But here are his words that come to us through the ages. He writes, The wrath of God burns against them, the pit is prepared, the fire is made ready, the furnace is now hot, the flames rage and glow. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder and you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you ever have done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Now, the gospel is the good news, the great good news, that in light of that, God, by the death and resurrection and present reign and presence of his Son, has saved you from the just wrath of God. The gospel is the good news that God has rescued us, that his wrath has been turned away. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the revelation of the love of God. But the fact is that his love doesn't just sweep away unrighteousness. If it could, if it did, then the book of Romans would be considerably shorter. This Bible would be considerably shorter. If if the love of God were just sentimental pap, if it means I feel nice towards you and so now I will be nice towards you, we wouldn't need the depth and the richness and the facets that we see in the love of God, partly from this text. My favorite Scottish theologian, P.T. Forsyth, in a magnificent book, written about a hundred years ago, but a magnificent book called The Holy Father. Here those two themes come together. The holy, the pure, the just Father, loving and merciful and gracious. We approach a holy Father, Forsyth writes, God's wrath is a consequence of his love. Goodness without wrath would not be goodness. God spares us because he is good, but he could not be good if he were not just. God's love is not just sentimental. John Piper puts it this way, the love of God is a love full of costliness. It's a love full of sacrifice and full of holiness and full of wisdom and full of truth. The love of God is rich and it's full and we can break it up as a spectrum of glorious light. Christians today, you and I, have a weak grasp on the love of God, partly because we have such a deluded picture of his purity and justice and holiness. We begin to learn from texts like this 
that the real issues of the universe are not the inaction and divides between Republicans and Democrats or the potential plague, and in some parts, of course, of the world, not, not potential infection of Ebola, or even the genocide being perpetrated by the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. It goes deeper than that. There is an enmity against God and a suppression, this text says, of truth and a deep unrighteousness of souls and the almighty wrath of God behind such things can only be overcome by the power of the gospel and the sacrificial life of Jesus Christ. Of all the Bible verses that have ever been associated with great figures, I imagine no two have ever been more closely related than Romans 117, the just in one translation, the righteous, a better hearing for the way I'm unpacking it. The righteous will live by faith, Romans 117 and Martin Luther. We have just missed by two Sundays observing Reformation Day Sunday when we would remember the day in 1517 when Luther nailed 95 theses to a door in Wittenberg. And although I think, in fact, the Protestant Reformation in its inception began before that, but from that day we, we mark the movement of God in which we stand in this sanctuary at this hour. Many of you know the story of how Luther, from his earliest youth, feared that one day a holy and righteous God would judge him. And because of that, out of fearfulness, in 1505, he became an Augustinian monk, and he fasted, and he prayed, and he devoted himself to the most menial of tasks. Most of all, he devoted himself to penance, confessing long hours of days, some of them by necessity for the sacrament of penance, to live confessors, boring them to no end with the smallest of details. One source says the superiors so wearied of having to listen to him that they ordered him to stop confession until he had committed some sin worth confessing. <laughs> Most of us don't have that problem. Luther's piety gained him a reputation of being the most exemplary of monks. He wrote of himself, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his muckery, I should certainly have been entitled to it. But still Luther found no peace to his attempt to achieve personal righteousness by his own works. He wrote, what works can come from a heart like mine? How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted in their very source? So Luther's journey led him to the study of Scripture and eventually to the book of Romans and eventually to this text. He understood the righteousness we need in order to stand before a holy God. It is not righteousness that our efforts can attain. In fact, it is not human righteousness at all. It is divine. It is the gospel of Christ. It becomes ours as a result of free grace. And it took root so deeply in Luther's life 
that it allowed him to say in the diet of worms as he stood before those in whose hands his life was being weighed, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest of reasoning. My conscience is bound by the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. What a legacy of faith and of strength. This verse and that witness has left. And what a rebuke it is to most of us in present day Christianity. The church does not stand tall before the world. It bows to it. Christians are not fearless before ridicule. We flee from it. And I believe it is because we do not know the depth and the dimension and the colors and the real sake of the gospel. How do we know that? Luther found it by scripture, by studying scripture, but in this text he says from faith to faith. It's an odd phrase. The phrase only occurs or something similar to it one other time in scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians. Paul says we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma of life to life, death to death, life to life, faith to faith. In 2 Corinthians, it's quite clear that the first step leads on to a deepening step. Those who are dead and contemplating and facing it go to further death. Those who are alive and contemplating and facing it are led to further life. From faith to faith, our faith in Christ deepens our faith. Faith means looking to Christ, looking away from ourselves. Attaching ourselves to him by our trust, by our look, by our, by our gaze, our children's story reminded us. Looking at who God is. Luther was helped in that, a mentor, Johann von Stoppitz, as he was a young monk struggling. Before he had come to the full realization of the import of Romans 117 that he would come to, Stoppitz gave him this advice, good advice, great advice, life-changing advice. He said, look at the wounds of Jesus Christ, to the blood that he has shed for you. It is there that the grace of God will appear to you instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins. Throw yourself into the Redeemer's arms. Trust in him, in the righteousness of his life, in the atonement of his death. Do not shrink back. Look to Christ. Faith to faith. Faith is looking to Christ. Faith is looking at God and not at yourself and looking at God. And in coming to know who he is and whose we are before him, our life can be changed eternally. May it be so for you and for me. Living and holy God, we ask your forgiveness for our paltry and weak faith. 
for our too regular lack of recognition of who we are and what you have done and how great is our salvation. Faith may be the assurance of things unseen, but in Jesus Christ and in his cross and in his resurrected reign and in his present love, it is felt and known and transforming. May we live fearless lives, faithful lives, because we have looked to the cross, because we have looked to Christ, because we have looked to you. In Jesus' name we pray.